Oh, all right, we'll do the chocolate rating, much against my better judgment, I must say, but no matter. Here we go. Okay, holding at number five, we have Hershey's. It's still, it's just horrible. Down three at number four, I'm very sad to say, just going out of the charts is Milka. Why is that? Well, it didn't come out very good on the tasting, which is true, sadly, but also ethically, it's a bit, bit dodgy. It's dodgy on lots of different levels. At three, holding their own in the chart, Cadbury's. Number two, no move, we have Galaxy. But number one, top of the chocks, we have Divine. Not only did it taste fantastic, but also it's ethically just a jolly job, Pod Chef says. Welcome to Lower Blakemere Farm in Herefordshire. Broadcasting to the world, it's Wiggly Wigglers. I'm Heather. I'm Richard. And I'm Farmer Phil. On this week's show we've got Sir Ben Gill, ex-president of the NFU and something to do with the government's task force on biomass, mm. talking about the year of food and farming. And new native of Herefordshire, he's yes, not he's long moved to the county. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, excellent. And we've also got news on us sending out our catalogues bare in the muddy. Ah, excellent. Those of news on that. We've got a few Richard tips on slugs. No. Uh, are we? Snails. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> Snails and tipex. Yeah, right, excellent. And yeah. I've got a little Pun stick of rhubarb. Of rhubarb. Uh, which I've been uh, scrunching and also with yeah, yeah. as yeah. a it tip from Joe in the office yeah. and we've also got Alison in with plans of the week which I can't wait for because it's juniper juniper uh, you have juniper in the bath don't you isn't that juniper I've never juniper in the bath maybe that's just I've had her in lots of places <laughs> but never in the bath <laughs> Good lord. Juniper is something to do with gin, isn't it? It is. Yeah, gin is made from juniper berries. There we are. Well, it was the launch of food and farming last week at Prince Charles's house and this week at Stephen Ware's ploughing match. Phil, what did you think of it? I thought it went very well. We had a, a launch which you chaired, which invited a number of the local teachers to come and hear about the year of food and farming and what it meant. And... Yeah, we filled the joint. There were plenty of teachers there, there were plenty of farmers there, and I thought it went well. And they want you, Rich. Right, fabulous. Yeah, they want you to talk to them. Excellent. And they also want, many, many schools in Herefordshire now want to adopt a farmer. Really? So I have volunteered Farmer, farmer Phil. Phil. Excellent. <laughs> I was only relieved that she didn't try and auction me, Rich, because I thought it'd be very embarrassing when she doesn't get a bid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you should be so down on yourself, Phil. I think, you know, you need to be a little more optimistic well, I about your work. Well, I didn't see a great clamour to be adopted. I'd, in fact, I'd pay a fiver for you, Phil. Would you? <laughs> You're right, Rich. Um, Phil, do you want to fill us in on basically what it is? The year of food and farming is, very briefly, the idea is to get 
school children, notably primary school children, out on the farm and to get farmers into schools armed with props and information to explain what they do to the kids to connect them with their food and where it comes from. So that means that you would personally go into schools? Absolutely, and I've already got an invitation to go to Monmouth Girls' School. Yes, uh, first time I've been invited uh, yeah, there under the rules. And Sir Ben Gill used to be president of the NFU. He did. What sort of job did he do, Phil? He was pretty good, actually. He had a good rapport with the senior politicians without necessarily agreeing with them. I might not agree with everything he says, but he believes in what he says and he managed to get it over to them by and large. So, yeah, I, I was quite happy when, when he was president. And we met up with Bill Wiggin, our local MP, mm. who turned out to be a fan of Zach Goldsmith. Local Tory MP, isn't he? He's your, well, your yes. sort of MP, isn't of he? Not my sort of MP. No, of course not. <laughs> Definitely not. What would yours be? Um, someone that's not a Tory. Shall <laughs> <laughs> we go? That would therefore include the current... Um, dose of <laughs> ramshackle idiots who are overseeing our <laughs> oh, moving on That's farmer true. phil I think, I think you might have a point shall we go and listen to sir ben gill telling us why he thinks food and farming is important i'm joined by sir ben gill who some of you may remember as chairman of the nfu and general authority on farming matters within the uk and widely respected for his opinions on it and i thought i'd just ask you one or two questions about the year of food and farming and the local launch that we're at here and your thoughts surround the subject so so briefly what what is your take on the year of food and farming well the background to the year on food and farming is to start to reintroduce the whole subject of farming and rural matters back into schools back into the curriculum and back into the thoughts of those who wish to educate generally over the years i've had many school visits and i've always been amazed even when we have rural schools rural primary schools coming to visit how little they know about farming these visits particularly with primary school children can be very formative in what they take back about the countryside and their understanding of it which all too often is confused by general media hyperbole and exaggeration as something very different from the reality and we can also at the same time inform them about how their food is produced what the different types of food are and many other issues. So really it's part of the continuing drive to persuade British farmers to actually get involved in marketing and in a positive sense rather than in any way defensive is to to invite our customers to come and see what we get up to really. It's to improve the understanding of why certain foods are available at certain times of year and not, to understand where the basic products come from. It's quite alarming when you read the surveys school children don't know that tomatoes are grown in Britain think margarine comes from cows and so on and so forth and if we're going to address this burgeoning issue of obesity in this country you've got to start by improving the understanding of where food comes from what makes it up and what's gone into its preparation what is the original product very many people don't even know what say certain processed products like bread or pasta come from they don't know they come from cereals and it's about understanding that and improving that dialogue between the farmer and the consumer and of course in britain unlike many other countries in the world 
we are such a small part, less than 1% of society, so there is this dysfunctionality, whereas in many of the other countries of the world, the farming population is not as efficient and forms a greater percentage of the community, so there is a much greater interface. I've noticed on a, on a local scale, I mean, obviously we've opened our farm on Open Farm Sunday, but you would probably be more aware on a national scale, but my impression is that there is a great hunger within both children and the general public at large that they want to get out onto farms, they want to see what's going on. And I'm guessing that you've probably noticed that. How important do you think it is that people like yourself who are used to presenting ideas and explaining things to the general public get involved with food and farming? And I mean, I'm sure you've got a diary full of events where you're doing just that, but how we explain these things to the public is absolutely critical, isn't it? Well, it is, and if you get to the younger population, it can be very, very formative. I also remember when I used to do school visits on a regular basis when I had more time, and, you know, you'd have your party around 50, 60 children, and you get a very nice letter from the school afterwards with the children writing letters saying thank you for the, for the visit, and they nearly always write, thank you for the drink of orange juice, or thank you for the biscuit. And you were left thinking, well... That wasn't the point of it. What have I, what have I achieved? And, and all this was put in context a few years ago when I, we had some friends to say, and we went out to a local pub I hadn't been to before for a meal, and we went in and were greeted by a very nice, attractive young lady in her late 20s who greeted me like a long-lost friend, and I didn't know her. And, and there were eyebrows raised by my wife as to how did I know her, and she knew me, and, and I said I didn't. Cut a long story short, it transpired, we discovered at the end of the meal, she said, you don't remember me. And then she went on to describe how 20 years before she'd come on a farm visit to my farm and described every part of that visit 20 years later, even down to the headmaster fainting at the sight of blood when a ewe lambed. Excellent. Well, I think that probably sums up what we're trying to achieve, really, doesn't it? I mean, it's, I, I, to create, it's to create a memorable occasion so they understand what's going on, but also to use farming as a tool for education. You know, you can go... I've taken children into fields of barley, for example, and you can pull a barley plant up and you can say, look, there's one tiller or two tillers, let's count how many grains of it, the grain there are in each year. Now, if we put one grain in and we're getting, say, 30, 40, 50 grains out... What does that mean the yield is going to be? And you can count plants in sugar beet, you can count potatoes in the potato field, uh, you can look at cattle and look at the different shapes and sizes and, and do survey work on that. And all this is putting the theory into practice that can enthuse, activate ideas and be much more productive in improving general learning than just doing it by rote from a textbook in theory. Well, I think looking at the potential turnout here at Webley, both in terms of ploughing competitors and all the preparations going on for the, the launch event in here and, and the domestic sections next door, that bodes pretty well for the rest of the year of food and Well, I, I certainly hope so. There's been a lot of interest from it. It's a concept that's come from FACE, which is the Farming and Countryside Education Initiative based at the Royal Showground. It's something I've been involved with for some years, both when I was within the NFU and since I've retired, I'm involved in, uh, in the strategic development of that organisation. And this was an idea that came out of that strategic group about now 18 months ago when we came up with the idea. And it's something I hope is going to be enormously successful. Well, it's looking good. Let's hope it goes from strength to strength. Thank you very much indeed for your time, Sir Ben. We, we look forward to the rest of today's launch and the festivities that go with it. Thank you. Well, that was very interesting, Sir mm. Ben. 
And on to even more interesting things, we've sent the catalogue out with no wrapper. No packaging. Nothing at all. Oh. It's quite cutting edge, you know, not many people do that. Really? Even your Sunday papers come in that plastic. Do they? Really? Mm. Good Lord. Don't you have the Sunday papers? So the CDs don't fall out. <laughs> anyway. Tory thing. We have got so much feedback <laughs> on sending this catalogue out with no wrapping. Here we go. Mrs Docker, thought you might like to know my catalogue has arrived safely with no envelope or plastic wrapper. Great idea. Well done. Hi Heather, just to let you know I received one of your weekly catalogues, no bag or envelope. Perfect condition. Great that you're now selling bulk bottles of Ecova. No more heavy bottles to carry. Order sent this afternoon. Thank you very much, Lois. New catalogue, Becky. Ooh, in response to you sending out your catalogues without using an envelope or plastic bag, what a fantastic idea. It arrived in perfect condition. Bit of an irony here. In another bid to reduce, reuse and recycle, we're about to move, so don't know where to go yet. Could you take our name off the mailing list? <laughs> Hey-ho. Just thought I would let you know that posting the catalogue without any plastic was great. I could look at it straight away and without tearing plastic and nothing to send to landfill. No damage, Alison. Let me see. Just so I drop you a line. New posting of catalogues, excellent. If only every business could be as ethically minded. So out of all these, there was only one problem. There's one lady who's had a catalogue, Paula Davis, who had a catalogue that was not in a very good state, a rip across the spine, and the outside had got warped from the wet. So at one out of probably 100 responses, it's no plastic. There you are. Snails. Snails? Home in snails. Home in snails. Oh, it's funny, last night I went I did a talk at a local gardening club. One lady in the audience said... We're talking about natural pest control, you know. And she said, uh, you know, I go out at night and pick my slugs and snails. And that's a great way to do it. It's a fantastic way of, of control, especially if you get a warm, wet night like tonight might be. So she went out she said, I got with 38... A so with a head torch, ideal. Head torches are perfect for the game. She got 38 snails. And she said, I said, well, what did you do with them? She said, uh, I, I just chucked them over the, over the fence, over the neighbours in the neighbours' garden. <laughs> and I said, oh. I said, the problem with that is they'll come back, you know. They will come back. I said, next time you do it, get them a little bottle of no, Tipex. No, the problem with that is the neighbour doesn't want the snails. Well, there's that, there's that. But if you get a little bottle of Tipex and put the numbers on the snail shells, you know, then you can see which one comes back first. <laughs> but they will come back. And, uh, and that would save... Them. Snail racing. No, yes. no, that would be... That that's like racing pigeons. So you could save racing pigeons. You could have a, a dual hobby of snail racing. So they would come home. Would that work? <laughs> How far can you put them? See how far. So 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 release a pigeon in France and see if it takes the same amount of time Time. for a pigeon to come back from Brittany as it would a snail to come back from number 32. Exactly. What do you think? That's a great idea. You could put obstacles in front of them, couldn't they? So that you could have snails over the jumps. Ditches and... (laughs) They do the garden fence, obviously. My personal feeling is that you're better off taking the snails up and throwing them to the chickens because then that gives them a nice little crunchy treat. The neighbour's chickens or yours? Neither or. (laughs) Goodbye, Mr Mollusk. (laughs) Alison's coming in with plants of the week. What's been happening on the farm? Farmer Phil. We've been planting grass seeds first. That's the first thing we plant as soon as we get a chance. So what we've done is we've cleaned up the stubbles, which means effectively spraying any weeds that have grown in the stubbles with glyphosate, Roundup, so that that kills that off in a fairly harmless way and it saves us weed killer in the autumn and spring and the following crop. That's the idea of it. So now we're cultivating the fields, ploughing most of them. 
work them down, plant grass seed first, then we'll move on to winter barley and then winter wheat. Fabulous. Cattle, where Cattle. are they? Cattle are right where <laughs> they are stuck wherever they are because of our movement restrictions with foot and mouth. We're not allowed to move any cattle. So right now, most of our cattle are at Campston down near Abergavenny and that's where they have to stay, which is all right at the moment, but in six weeks' time it won't be all right because they'll have finished all the grass down there and we need to wean the calves. And unless the movement restrictions are lifted, we should be slightly knackered at that point. So what will happen if you can't wean the calves? We have to feed them somehow. They'll have to stay on the farm. I mean, for us, that would be a, a minor problem. But if you're a, a sheep farmer whose whole income comes at this time of year, so you bring your sheep down off the mountain or off the, the higher land and you sell either the lambs or the breeding stock that you've bred, that's your whole income and they can't do it. And so what do you do? You're feeding sheep, feed is expensive, you're stuck in a catch-22 situation and the worrying thing is that you don't know when the end game is so that you you can't actually plan, you can't say right well I'll feed them for three weeks and then I'll be able to move them or sell them or whatever, particularly sheep they would be going through various sales mechanisms at this time of year in tens of thousands and that is next year's lamb or in the case of cattle beef supplies that's how the breeding cycle works with sheep and so how come the supermarket is still stocked with meat because they're covering themselves and have done for some weeks with imported meat i suspect they would say that they cover themselves all the time by having a mixture of both so that when british supplies are not there they'll go for more imported stuff but at the moment we're allowed to send animals to slaughter so there isn't actually a shortage of meat to eat It's the breeding stock and the store stock, the animals which are due to be fattened for slaughter at some point later. But of course what's happened is that the restrictions have effectively demolished the prices in the livestock markets. To give you an example, lamb is making about 90-95p a kilo, where normally £1.20, £1.25, and that's just the effect of depression and movement restrictions allowing it becomes a buyer's market effectively like the, the price just disappears and can we have an update on the Blakemere 2 our oinkers because they seem to me to be pretty porky they're getting to the point where they're ready and the thing shortly. i wanted to ask you was that our neighbor told me that we're no longer allowed to have a mobile slaughter man here is that right? I, I don't know. Rachel had said that she knew of the possibility or whatever and was going to investigate it, and it's not no, no longer possible. It's not legal. It's a great pity, that. So you can kill your own pig being completely unskilled, you know, not knowing what you are doing, hmm. but you cannot have a qualified mobile slaughterman. Because years ago, it was a great tradition that you would have one person in the village who would go round and slaughter the family pig. And that's our pig bench, which is out there. That's exactly what that would have been used for. And there are still, they're fairly elderly now, still odd people who used to come round and do the slaughter the pig and cut it up and butcher it. And that's what they did. And it was a very traditional thing. And mm. obviously hygiene rules and so on ruled that out. What so, do you do with the pig bench then? The pig bench is what you put the pig on to, to butcher it. That's why it's got all knife marks in it. So you put the pig on it disembowel it and butcher it, cut it up. Well, we're going to find out all about this because we're going to Pod Chef's Nothing But The Squeal event 
which I think is on the 20th of October on his island, Shore Island. Island. Yeah, Podchef Island. Cooking where we're going to learn all, no. <laughs> all about cutting up porkers. He says there's not going to be any death involved. Right. Right, onward to rhubarb. Look, Rich, hmm. I've got a mouse ulcer. Yes, you learned a neat trick today, didn't I you? I learned a little trick, which is that rhubarb is great for mouse ulcers. That's real good, Rich, because I tell you what, she doesn't half look funny with a stick of rhubarb stuck out the side yeah, of her mouth. That's yeah. um, that's the latest update on rhubarb, but I did find an old rhubarb piece of information hmm. which says that it actually removes stagnation, clears away heat and purges fire, cools the blood and stops bleeding, removes toxin and promotes blood circulation to remove blood stasis. No. It's even more than Bukashi does. At the, <laughs> at the risk of reigniting old stories, is that applied or <laughs> eaten? Well, I have um, applied it. I have applied it. And on the note of wild rhubarb, let's move over to Alison for Plant of the Week with Juniper. Hello, Alison. Hello, Richard. It's nice to see you. I haven't had you on the uh, wiggly couch for a bit. No. What have you brought in for us today? Um, it's juniper tree. It's very uh, humble, isn't it? <laughs> it looks like a very poorly pruned Christmas tree. To it, me. Does, it does. It does. Oh, no. It's uh, it's, it's, they're very attractive when they're large, aren't they, junipers? Yeah, and you never get a juniper growing to any same shape. Each individual juniper tree or bush is completely different. Some will grow up into a, like a cone shape. Others will grow into a bushy shape or even a straggly, sprawly mess. Okay. Yeah, and they're all different, completely different. Right. I mean, it just it looks like something that you'd find in the Mediterranean. When I look at that, I, I said earlier, it looks like something you might find around the Acropolis or something. You know, it's, uh, it doesn't strike me as an obvious native British plant. No, it, it, this is one of the only three native conifers, in, true native conifers in the UK. Really? Along with the other two is the yew, of course, and yeah. the Scots pine. Ah, wow. Mm. And this juniper, it's got the largest geographic range of any woody plant in the world. It really? stems all through America, across Canada, USA, even Iceland, Southeast Asia, Fun. right across. Fantastic. So, mm. well, I mean, what, what, what benefit is it? I mean, how useful is it as a plant? I mean, it kind of, it, does it change colour much? Does it, is it? Is um, in, the, in the autumn, it'll go um, to a yellowy colour. So it, it would look slightly straggly in the autumn and winter months. Um, it's fantastic for um, ladybirds to hibernate during the winter months and ah. for birds for nesting. Okay. Of course, when it's larger, I mean, this is just a three-year-old yeah, this, this is a baby, isn't yeah. it, at the moment? I mean, what's, how long can they live for, junipers? They can live up to 120 years. Really? Mm. Oh, that's right. The so oldest so... one is about 250 years old, and that's really? an exception, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, would it be a good idea to plant a few together? I mean, obviously, um, it kind of makes a feature on its own. Yeah, habits, they, are, they do look nicer planted in groups. Obviously, they're quite slow-growing, so you do need something to look at initially, yes. What about fruit? I mean, Phil, given his alcoholic disposition, will appreciate what juniper berries are useful. <laughs> yeah. Are they, are they useful? Uh, do birds like juniper berries? Um, there's about three or six seeds in each fruit, so I think the birds must go for them because yeah. they're very juicy and turn to a bright purple colour. Yeah. <laughs> You've seen those on the North York Moors, Phil. Mm. There was a cave. I was trying to remember which moor it's on, but it's up on where I, I used to do quite a lot of pot island. There's a cave called Juniper Gulf, right. which has got... It's not a, a, a wide-open pothole, 
but it is an open pothole and the initial pot is about 150 foot I suppose and yeah. a, a distance down it there is a juniper tree growing out the side of it <laughs> it's the name juniper golf fantastic that's interesting stuff any other little tidbits about juniper berries? Well, apart from you can make gin, I suppose, Rich. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Do you like gin, Alison? Oh, yeah, I love a bit of gin. This suggests a sort of thought that, I mean, I, I've, I've recently been given some damsons. Right. Now, there's two gin. uses damson for damsons, damson gin and damson gin, in my view. Nice. <laughs> I was yeah, just well, wondering, yeah. what, what, the, what does a juniper say- berry taste like if you eat it fresh? Or, or are they very bitter? And and can you can you perhaps take some gin and make some juniper berries? No, I don't think that works the same as them, like slow gin and They're very sharp. Gin. Mm. There's, there's kind of irony in this, Phil. I mean, gin, amongst obviously amongst uh, other things alcoholic, um, that ultimately has come from a berry in a from a tree in a cave from a hobby that you did many many years ago that now you wouldn't be able to do because off the back of all the consumption of the said alcohol. <laughs> it's just a case of choice of cave, Rich. There right. are some caves right. that are indeed still large enough to encompass <laughs> my you get your sporting girth. frame. <laughs> but no, you are uh, right that in those days I weighed somewhat less than I do now. <laughs> I've bulked up since then. Uh, what, did you, what did you say? You, what, I've what bulked have you done? up oh, since right. then. <laughs> well, that's fabulous. Thank you very much, Al. Thanks, Al. Okay. And we've got a latest iTunes review. Right. Absolutely appalling allotment, man. If you can just buck it up a bit, we've only got four stars. That's Devastated so in Blakemere. Distraught. It must be Richard's fault. Must be. He seems to think it was good, though. Here we go. Funny, intelligent and unmissable. This is a podcast you all really look forward to downloading every week. Gardening, farming and environmental issues are discussed in a light-hearted, often hilarious and passionate way. You'll also learn a great deal and be affected by the issues raised. Even when Ricardo is banging on about worms, you are still captivated by his passion. Oh. The trio obviously enjoy what they do and their bounding enthusiasm is a joy to listen to. So if you want to travel to work, walk the dog or garden, etc. with an inane grin on your face, then add this to your downloads. You'll not be disappointed. Just don't listen to episode 100 first. You will think the lunatics are running the asylum. Thanks, guys. And I've got a review on Facebook for Podcast 100. In fact, we've got loads on there. And it goes like this. Do you want to read it, Rich? Uh, I can do. As a familiar Facebook user that you are. Uh, Well, I am now. I just uh, used it a bit recently. A lot recently, in fact. Yes, there's 42 excellent topics now. Addressing addressing all the different subjects. And one on cats. And the cat is still out there. But it's dwindled now. We've run out of stuff. I expect I've just rekindled the whole thing. No one has said, what are you talking about? Cats are great. Everyone said, no, you're right. Cats are Let's kill them all. No, <laughs> no, that's absolutely not true. Cats are a balance in nature. Yeah, we've done the cat row Here we go. Here's the latest one from David Dixon. Right at the bottom, Rich. David Dixon. Classic. Try and describe the merits of a mystery chocolate at the same time as guessing what it was by using a chocolate rating. And that was only half as funny as the final outcome of the taste testing. There we are. It's bye from us on Lower Blakemere Sofa for another week. I'm off to LA. Bye. Bye.
Bye from me. Bye from me. Listen to Sir Ben Gill telling us why he thinks food and farming is important. Say yes. 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 <laughs> yes. yes. Shall we go? I thought it was rhetorical. Shall we go away for an answer? Yes, Hev. <laughs> Let's go.